I was first introduced to the work of Carol Edgarian through her award-winning Rise, the Euphrates. Next came her New York Times bestseller, Three Stages of Amazement. And now we have Vera, an absolute triumph. As Anna Solomon says, Vera is a story of disaster and healing, power and humility, grit and grace, set against the lush, lascivious backdrop of San Francisco during the 1906 earthquake. This book is as whip-smart as its heroine, as electric as her city, and will haunt me in the best way for a long time to come. Carol, welcome to The Literary Life. It's great to see you once again. Oh, Mitch, it's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. I remember, you know, from your very first book, I think you came to the store with Rise of Euphrates, right? And I remember we were reading. Both kids. <laughs> What's that? What? When we were both kids. <laughs> we were both kids, but, but you're more of a kid, and you've been writing at a very early age you started, right? Did you have that book? When, were you, when did you start working on that book, Rise of Euphrates? I actually st- I started working on it in college. Um, and the first part of it was my uh, senior honors thesis and uh, really had been thinking about it even before then, just thinking about the Armenian genocide and those stories and that research and, and thinking of how that, that issue of how stories and trauma gets passed on from generation to generation. I'd been thinking about that since I was pretty pretty early on. So that book came, really came out of that. And you were, you were an East Coast kid. Who yep. came, and then when you went to Stanford, right? I went, that... I went to Stanford and never came back. I, right. I swore to my father I'd be back in four years, and that was uh, decades ago. Did you study writing in Stanford? Is that where I you... Did. I did. For writing and film. Oh, and film as well. Now, who were, who were some, you know, was... was uh, Toby Wolf there then? Or? Toby was not there. Toby was at Syracuse, oh. but he's um, he's a, he's a great friend of mine, and and um, I wish he had been there, but no. Um, who would you have known? Albert Gerard was my mentor. Uh-huh. He had been at Harvard for twenty years and had taught Updike and a lot of folks, and then came to Stanford, and he was amazing. He was um, he, he was the first first sort of real person to say you're a writer and I remember when he I remember when he said that he he looked at me said you're a writer and I thought oh my god (laughs) you know I that moment when someone can 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 give you that um can give you that mirroring and possibility and I remember also and it's something I've repeated to some of my students through the years is um he said, he said to me, you have talent. And then he paused and he said, that's about 10 or 15% of it. The rest of it is sweat. What are you, what are you going to do with that? And I remember, you know, the high of being said, oh, he thinks I have a little talent. And then realizing, gee, that's only a small part. I mean, what he was really, he was really raising the bar saying, you know, are you going to, are you going to put in the apprenticeship that's required? And, and you clearly, you have not cranked them out, right? I mean, you really, 
you really take the craft of it really seriously in the sense that your next book was a number of years later, which was Three Stages of Amazement, which also takes place in your adopted home, but it's no longer adopted. I mean, it's who you are, right, in San Francisco. You know, each book is hailed as a real event. It must be very, very, you know, um, gratifying to know that, you know, that you have this readership that will wait for you in that sense. That's a lovely thing to say. I, uh, I feel, I feel I have to earn it every time. You do have to earn it every time. There's so many, there's so many things vying for a reader's attention and a reader's heart. And I think every, every book you have to, you have to woo your readers again and say, come with me, um, take my hand. I'm going to lead you down a path that's going to that's that's going to engage you and entertain you and teach you something and reward you. I don't think I don't think you can ever take that for granted. No, never. And 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 I think what happens is that particularly with you, your voice is so distinct and you're so comfortable in your voice that readers trust it. You know, what's really been interesting is through your career, which has spanned a number of years, publishing has changed. Publishing has changed pretty significantly. And what I love, though, is that with your new book, Vera, you know, some of the changes in publishing have worked to your benefit. And I'll just, you know, one of the things that we've done now, and I don't know if it was there for three stages of amazement. It might have been. But uh, we now have, you know, indies get together and they have this thing called, you know, the Indie Selects. um, And they are basically the books that independent booksellers really buzzing about and really love prior to publication. And your was one of uh, 10 books selected, you know, as an indie selects for this month. And one of my favorite people and one of my favorite readers was the one who quoted it. And, and, you know, Gail Shanks from Changing Hands. And Gail is one of the great, great readers. So if she, if she has an indie next, um, piece, then you know it's special. And she writes about Vera, experienced the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 like never before. From inside the family of one of the most brothel, excuse me, one of the most famous brothel madams. In this story, Edgarian combines lyrical writing and a cast of unforgettable characters, both real and imagined, with themes of love, rejection, graft, and economic disparity, all sprinkled with racism and misogyny. You won't be able to visit the city by the bay ever again without looking for Rose and her descendants. I couldn't put this down. And I, and I felt the exact same way about it. So talk about what it's like. You published three books in three very distinctive times. Now, what was it like publishing this into this void of our pandemic, into this time of the pandemic? You know, it's so interesting. I mean, you've 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 touched on so many, so many things that um, I wanted I want to talk with you about. But you know, one thing that really strikes me, um, and and it's never felt this way before. You know, you here's a book set in 1906. So I lived for for the first couple of years of writing it. I lived in 1906. Um, just you know, I go way down the rabbit hole of research, and um, 
then I willfully forget everything and just what remains uh, is, is the conjuring. So you, you, you're, I wrote of another time in the time um, leading up to the 2016 election. And my initial idea, you know, I think I'm always looking for that nexus between something political, something, um, forgive me, seismic that's going on in society. And then this idea of a character who's, who's looking for agency, looking for some kind of reinvention. So I have this idea of an adventure story. I wanted to write it from a, a, a girl, a young woman's point of view. I don't think there are enough of those stories out there. Um, but a girl who was really contrary and who was bucking societal expectations. So I had that notion and I had, and the Quake stuff I had been I'd been reading up on the quake for a couple decades. I was really fascinated by this idea of societal, like society within a minute could collapse. Like what an extraordinary thing, 45 seconds. Um, I mean, I, we have but, to say that, that you were working on this way before the pandemic, right? Way you before the this pandemic. way before. So, so where that, where that all started to gel for me was leading up to the 2016 election, it seemed to me that our society was in a precarious state. Um, our society, um, there, so many elements of our society um, were, were at a critical moment of, of a, a critical moment of collapse. And suddenly it seemed to me that's really an interesting, that's an interesting place to be. And, how about if I look at that in 1906 when mm -hmm. there was widespread corrupt political corruption and we can talk about all that. So to your point, I'm in 1906, but I'm writing it like 2014 to 20, you know, just conjuring it 2016, 2017, 20, you know, and I do draft after draft after draft. So you write it in, in, in the present moment but then it gets published and read in an entirely different time. So I finished the book in January of 2020. So really before COVID, um, you know, we're, it, we didn't even have the first like sort of inkling of COVID. Right, right. And how wild to have it be read in an entirely different time and context, which you could never predict. So, and readers, of course, are always reading in context of, of today. But I think in moments of true catastrophe, before society sort of re reasserts itself and puts its screws on everyone, there is, there is a window, there's a moment for rejiggering and recalibration and even new possibility. Um, and I think we've seen that in the last year with BLM and, and all this all this sort of cleaning out of the pipes, if you will, of, of gee, who are we? Who are, who are we coming out of this, of this disaster? And can we be new and, and bigger uh, in, in ways? So let's go back to the conception of it all. So how did Vera come about? I'm always looking for a character, um, in this case, Vera, who who has the kind of nuance and contradiction that gives me the most room to see 
um, when she is put to a test, what happens? And I'm, you know, that, that, that old saw of write what you know, I don't, I, I write what I want to find out about. You know, I write, I write, I write towards something I can vaguely see, but I can only get there step by step. You know, I can't leap across the river, but I can go stone by stone by stone. So in Vera's case, this notion of um, a girl who is the daughter of the most successful madam of the Barbary Coast, but her mother, uh, and she doesn't know who her father is. And instead of being raised in this world, um, she has been assigned a foster mother who doesn't really like her or understand her, who doesn't look like her. You know, uh, Vera is olive skin, dark hair, dark eyed, and she's put with this Swede who is fair. Um, Maury, you know, Maury's got her own problems. She's a gambler and a drinker. And, um, you know, so she's, so Vera is housed, but she's really unmoored, un, uh, you know, homeless in the sense of homeless of the heart. Um, she's well, she really, talks about how she lost two mothers, right? She lost two mothers. She lost she's, two mothers. she's really smart. And, it, and, and the, the challenge I gave myself was, you know, oh, uh, the older Vera narrates the book, but the younger Vera moment to moment is trying to figure out how to make her way in the world and how to survive. And could I give that kind of intelligence on the page? So the reader moment to moment is trying to figure it out, is figuring it out with Vera. You know, the, that line, all my life I was looking for a catastrophe greater than my birth. <laughs> I love that one. That's her essential problem, right? And guess what? You get what you wish for. No, and but... you, don't, you don't ever get it in the form you wished it for. You know, that's the great thing about fiction. Nobody gets exactly what they want. And when they finally get it, it's different than what they thought they wanted. I also thought that the, the playing off the older sister was so perfect. It's so brilliant because she, she was the antithesis of the older right. sister. Well, you but, can't, I don't think you can really experience things until you see them in contrast. You see them in juxtaposition. And Pi, her, her foster city, I, sister, you know, is that, that woman of the time. She's beautiful. She, her expectation is to marry and in that way rise and that is absolutely counter to what how Vera thinks, who's very independent. But you know, in all the characters, um, I mean, one of the things that the the earthquake gave me in terms of before and after was you see the whole world before, and as I said, you know, the the political aspect of the book. The mayor was Mayor Eugene Schmitz, a corrupt guy, if ever there was, was supposed to be indicted on the morning of the quake. Right. And instead he gets, he gets a disaster to deal with. I mean, he's still, the arc of the book, a year later, he, his problems come back. But, you know, Vera intersects with all these key players, some, many fictional and many real. And, you know, she's walking with this mare. And, and what we learn is, you know, she has the thought, I was just looking for one adult one adult who could show me how to behave. Right. And of course, she never finds that. She has to become that person. How comfortable with you were you with taking license with the facts? In other words, where did that, where did, where did that begin and end? And 
uh, does it matter actually at the end of the day? I think it matters in that the reader has to trust that what you're giving them is has 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 a level of accuracy. So if I name something specifically, I, it absolutely has to be accurate, I think. Now that said, I'm sure there are going to be historians who read this and say, no, 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 no. Um, but I, I, I think I, I, I research enough to be dangerous. How about that? Mm, and I research enough. I never know in my research. I mean, one of the things about the quake, and of course we have to say, people think about the quake, but they don't think about the fire. And it was actually the fire, three days of fire. I mean, you know, we're talking about 28,000 buildings. Will you talk about that day a little bit? Will you paint the picture yeah. of that day? Yeah, so the quake, the quake happened at, just after five o'clock in the morning on April 18th, 1906. So imagine you're in, you're, you're asleep and it's still dark out. It's April. It's not, you know, the sun's not up. So, and everything starts to move and the noise, I mean, what you, you know, and I hope, I, I hope the noise, I mean, and the, it comes across, I mean, it's a roar. It's a, it's, it, there are things breaking, but it's almost like the elements of the earth are crying. And, you know, it comes up through the house. I mean, it's, people have described it as a freight train, but, but it also has an organic moaning, sobbing kind of sound. Mm -hmm. The wood actually kind of protests. And, and it was one quake and quickly followed by an aftershock. So sort of what hung on then is challenged again. And then you get outside and, you know, dawn is just coming out and people have died. There are dead horses. There's moaning animals everywhere. And they get outside and they're sort of just gathering themselves. And different parts of the city fare differently. You know, if you were on bedrock, you did okay. I live in a Victorian house that was built in 1874 mm -hmm. and it did, it did just fine, though the fire well, let me, let me get to the fire. But um, so you're gathering, you know, if you survived, you're outside, you're sort of, your house could be, could be, um, have jumped off its foundation. So you're just trying to grab the, the stuff that you need. And over a hill, you see the first clouds of smoke. And what happened is immediately, you know, the, the gas pipes burst and the water pipes burst. So there was nothing to fight the fire. And, um, you know, we could, talk, we could talk at length about human folly. But, you know, in Hayes Valley, a big part of the city, there was a woman who had young kids and her house collapsed, her chimney broke in half, and her kids were hungry. And who knows, she was probably thinking this could be the last meal. She starts a fire in her chimney to cook them breakfast and it explodes and it, it was called the ham and eggs fire and it burned a huge part of the town. Mm. Um, so for the next three days, the fire, um, the fire was out of control, 50 some odd fires around the city and ultimately 500 city blocks were just ash, ash. So, you know, how do you get food? How do you get water? 250,000 homeless. 
many of whom were put on um, naval ships and taken away, but a lot weren't. So people are dragging their trunks, their, their, their belongings to higher ground. And one of the things, Mitch, that was so amazing was I saw so many photographs of people standing in parks trying to sort of stake their, you know, resting. And the, the fire is only like 10 blocks away. They're not running. I think they're so shell-shocked from the quake. And here comes the fire. And sometimes you'd see people having a picnic watching the fire. And it's amazing. Like just all that, all that about like, what would you do? How would you handle it if you stayed once the fire went out? How would you get food and water and keep your family going? And then, you know, weeks and months, no heat. Um, I, to talk to your, to what you're saying about resiliency. I mean, that's when you find out what you're really made of. And very much so in the, in the book, I wanted, I wanted to look at who are the people you can count on? Who are the people who are your chosen people? They're not, for Vera, they're not the people she would have expected to be her people. And I love, I loved that sense of discovery for me um, as I was writing of who came to the foreground, who came, who came and showed that they were, they were sort of special forces. They were worthy. It gives you a, a large, large canvas to look at, you know, with all of these characters that are there that you introduce. Talk about the corruption of San Francisco because we, that plays a very big part. You know, so um, the mayor of San Francisco at the time was a guy named Eugene Schmitz, who was a good looking guy, who um, was a violinist, had no political experience, wasn't, you know, but he was highly susceptible to uh, ambition and not, not opposed to, uh, you know, graft. And the town was run by a guy named Abe Ruff who was the youngest person ever to graduate Berkeley, was a total idealist while he was at Berkeley. He graduated when he was 16. He had to wait to take the California bar because he wasn't yet 21. Wow. And he started as this idealist who wanted to create a just society and something happened to him and he flipped and and became the political boss of all of San Francisco. He owned the board of supervisors, he owned the sheriff, and of course he owned the mayor. So they owned, they owned prostitution dens. They were on the, you know, they, uh, every saloon was paying them under the table. Everybody was taking uh, bribes. And there was a whole debate about the trolleys, underground versus above ground. And their biggest mistake was they, they, they took from the wrong group. And they were, Ruff and Schmitz on April 18th were due to be indicted for graft. And instead the quake happened. Now, fast forward a year later where the book ends, um, Ruff is sentenced to San Quentin. And so is Schmitz, but a little loophole, which we won't give away. Yeah, don't. Don't give that away. (laughs) He skates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's... It's a fascinating portrait of a, of a time, but you know, I, it, it, you channeled so many different voices in this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's so, so masterful, uh, you know, and, and you had us invested in all of these characters. 
which is really something very hard to do. Some of them were not very likable either. <laughs> so, you know, but we were invested in them one way or another. Well, you know, we can't, I, I, I mean, I, 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 I feel my job is to show a character in, in, in as many dimensions as I can. That's what makes them real, to show them in their wrong rightness. If I like to think about their, both their desire and their vulnerability and where, where they behave in contradictory ways, despite all intentions. And you know, one character um, who really came forward the more I wrote was Tan. And Tan, can, um, Tan was Rose's major domo. He was, he was her chef. He was her butler. He knew wines. He um, could manage all of her, both her house and had worked at, her, at the Rose, her brothel. And he also had to once a week go down to where Vera was living and um, take care of sort of that insanity of that house. And he didn't like Vera he thought of her as just one more task he had to deal with. And this was an elegant man, a refined man, a man devoted to his daughter and father, who was Chinese in 1906. Right. And so he is relegated to having to live in a basement of a grand house on a dirt floor with cast off furniture. And that, that, that really gets to Vera as once Vera gains agency, once it's after the quake, I mean, she really starts to see what is, what is so wrong about um, society. And moment to moment to moment, she and Tan start out as just really enemies. And they, they betray one another. They're, they're really, you know, they, they despise one another. And yet, on the other side of the quake, something new happens. And um, an awareness that they are actually much more alike and perhaps are the ones they can trust most. That, that, they're, that the bond is built, I hope if I've done it right, the bond is built through real showing up. Well, you did it right. Uh, <laughs> you really, really did it right. And when, you know, there are people that I admire who've read the book and they say things much better than I can. I know that Ann Beattie, you know, who I'm a huge fan of, talks about mm -hmm. how sweeping and panoramic uh, Vera is. It's a novel of great immediacy and heart from the early scene at the opera to its shocking real world correlative in so many ways it sings, which is really a nice way of thinking about it. The music of the book, you know, the book stayed with me in that kind of way and I could find myself going back to it. You did something quite good, Cal. <laughs> it was really... So that that you are a writer, that early that early professor of yours uh, was uh, absolutely prescient. But you know, but the other thing about you is that you've lived a literary life that has been really fulfilling. Talk a little bit about about narrative, about the magazine, the online magazine, which which you know, the more I read about it, I mean, I didn't know as much about it until I knew that I was going to be talking to you today. But what you've done is astonishing the amount of voices that you've brought to the fore and made them available to so many people. Talk about narrative and, and what that means. You know, we're 18 years in, and when we started, it was just, you know, the digital world was so new. Um, and uh, fast forward to today, um, 
you know, we publish and, and pay uh, for the work of more than 300 artists a year. And what's happened um, when we talk about COVID, I mean, our readership is all across the globe. Um, big pockets, obviously, here, but India, Africa, Russia. Um, how have these people found this, this uh, platform for literature? Well, it's free. So, and everything we've ever published, you know, there's something, there's more than 5,000, 6,000 poems and stories. And, you know, um, how, for me, it, it's just so rewarding to have, to have careers such as Minjin Lee and Anthony Mara, and Natalie Diaz and Ocean they, Vaughn. They were in your pages to begin They were with. first, they're narrative prize winners wow. launched in narrative. That is and, amazing. You know, first first published or early published in narrative and to bring them forward. I mean, for me to be able to bring forward other, other, other great, great writers work and, and to have them alongside the Joyce Carol Oates and the Tobias Wolves right. and the, um, Jericho Brown and so many voices. But here's something that's really interesting in terms of COVID. When the world shuttered uh, in March, we saw spike of traffic of like 70%. And mm. what it turned out being was um, teachers all over the world turning to the narrative library to teach literature. And we just are finishing up. I was just spent the weekend reading. Um, we threw um, our poetry, um, high school poetry contest. And um, Javier Zamora is our guest judge. and. We just put out the call in January to teachers um, and uh, 11 countries, 40 states in the U.S., 184 cities we got from, you know, we heard from teachers submitting poems um, on, the, on the prompt escape. We thought, let's like let these kids like dream of what would they do. And these poems are unbelievable. I mean, the talent is just incredible. And how, do that, people, how do people find you online? So narrativemagazine.com. And um, everything, everything is there for you to enjoy. Uh, no subscription fee. And um, join the community because um, I really, you know, if writing is my vocation, narrative is my church. And, um, you know, just to be able to spread the word of the good, of, of good work that brings us home to our hearts. That's really, really beautiful. And I, I, that, that is just amazing work that's being done. You know, I mean, you talk about resiliency and, and, and I think the publishing industry has found that as well. I mean, yeah. the fact that we're talking, we're doing this podcast, people won't see it, but we're doing it over Zoom so we get to see one another. But all of the virtual events that are going on now um, right. that are... Uh, giving people an opportunity to talk to different people, you know, from two different cities or two different countries are able to communicate with one another. I think what's been created over the last year, you know, is an archive that's going to be studied years from now, you know, in terms of what this year was like when you really think about it. Well, we, we need to tell our stories. You know, there's what happens moment to moment. There's the, there's the news but 
how we tell the story and, and the art we create, create from it. I mean, if you look back in time, it's these kinds of moments from which great art came. Yeah. Um, you know, it, again, the, what you said about resiliency, but also the grist. I mean, what, what does it mean? What does it mean in, in our greater story? Well, it's also during these times, I keep thinking of Williams, you know, that so much depends upon the red wheelbarrow. It's not so much depends upon Anthony Fauci. I mean, a lot depends on him, but that's not what the histories are going to be written about. No. That's right. not what, you know, the average person really thinks about. They're thinking about how they're going to put money on the, you know, food on the table and how they're going to get their next shot and that sort of thing. Um, what I've been enjoying, viewers, too, is a word, please. Oh, good. <laughs> That's been really fun. Oh, uh, good. Really, really fun. Talk oh, about that a little bit. Oh, I'm having so much fun doing it. So on Instagram, I'm C Edgarian, um, first initial Edgarian. And every Tuesday, I take a word and I turn it around. Like, where did it come from? What did it initially mean? And how has it evolved through time? And how does that tell us about our time? I mean, one example uh, around the election, I looked at the word vote. And vote's origin is vow. Now think about that, that you're taking a solemn vow when you vote. I mean, doesn't that have a whole different meaning that, the, that both those words came from the same place? And, and and over and over, you find that, like how we lost our way with a word and have come back to it. Um, anyway, they're, they're short. They're like 10 minutes long. Sometimes I bring someone on. I had a great um, friend, Greg from Dandelion Chocolate, come talk about the origins of chocolate. Which was I saw amazing. the one recently, the one you did on assimilation, which I thought was really... Yeah. Was it assimilation? I think it was assimilation. It was... No, uh, it wasn't assimilation. Not assimilation. It was... Um, now, appropriation, now appropriation. 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 So Paisley Rectell yeah, has an amazing book yeah. on cultural appropriation and what right. does it mean and what are the guardrails and what are, you know, and it's a very murky, it, it's, it, I, I shouldn't say it's murky, it's complex. Right. It's well, complex. I think that the whole notion of getting into these subjects through a simple word, a simple phrase, that is, it's just brilliant. Um, Mitch, Mitch, I'm gonna I'm gonna call you and have you come join me one of these. Why don't we talk about the word book? All right. Well, that could be that could that could go on for a while. But I know um, <laughs> the good, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the word book. Or story. <laughs> or story. Uh, story. Story is something because you know we all have that sort of little tape going on inside of us that. You know, some of us, some of you are talented enough to let that story out. But unfortunately, others, that story just keeps going around and around and around and never, never makes much sense. But yeah, you story could be very interesting. We've never gotten away from that really basic need at the end of the day to sit around the campfire and ground whatever happened in the, connective, in the connectiveness between us. You know, this happened, but in a way it didn't happen until we shape it, retell it, and share it. That's exactly right. And I think part of the problem that we're finding, I think, would you agree with me that it's the atomization of that campfire, which is causing a lot of problems these days. A lot of People problems. are sitting around their own campfires and 
we don't have the shared campfire that we once had, or maybe we never really had it, but at least there was a, at least we all could agree that it was a campfire. You know, at least there was the fact of the campfire. Now we have people going off in these kind of tangents, which are not rooted in any, anybody's reality, really. Right. Well, and, and how do we bridge, how do we bridge those divides? Yeah. We, we bridge them by, by, by figuring out that, that some of the needs, that we all have the same needs and we all have basically the same hearts. You know, one of the things about this whole idea of historical fiction, it's got to read as news of the day. Yes. Yeah. But it's also, you know, um, we have these devices we carry, we have different cars and all that, but we haven't retooled the human heart or the human animal. So we, we're, we're, we're all the same. It's, it's the same desire, the same folly. Um, I, I sometimes think that we've lost our sense of humor. Yeah, no, that's you know? really... Like to really be able to step outside ourselves and say, yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I really try, but I fail a lot of the time. No, this, is, this is off topic, but I've often thought with these Zooms, I may, I may, you may see me do this one day, I'd like to have like, I'd like to have a Zoom where, where it's authors telling jokes, you know, have like, you know, like Hollywood squares, you know, like a big, like 20 people, 30 people. and just I love that. Just I, want to know, I want to be there. Would be, <laughs> I have like uh, three really good jokes. <laughs> I'm like, you know. <laughs> That's one more than I have, but it's good to have it. Carol, this has been really lovely. I mean, mm -hmm. really, really lovely. Would you read that, that bit? Oh, I would love to. We would love you to read from, from the book, Vera. This was one of my favorite parts that you're going to read, by the way. Oh, I just good. think it's the beginning, but it, it, it sets the tone so wonderfully. I also have to say, I really also loved what, I love the, the, the Audubon quote, when the bird and the book disagree. Always believe the bird. I love that. Isn't that fantastic? It's and don't you really, love that he's the one who said that? I mean, yeah, yeah, of course. Higher authority than Audubon. First things. I always thought of my city as a woman, but the house it turned out was a woman too. When the quake hit, she groaned. Her timbers strained to hold on to their pins, the pins snapping and the rocks beneath the house, they had voices too. And if ever I wondered how long it would take for the world to end, I know, 45 seconds. An unearthly stillness preceded and followed the shaking. It's what we did and didn't do in the stillness that determined the rest of our days. I lost two mothers that year. The first was Rose. I can't say where she was born or where her kin came from, the fact is, I don't know what mix of blood flows through me. I suspect there's some Persian, possibly Armenian. I understand there may be some Northern African and Spanish in the mix too, and a good pour of French. Spanish by way of Mexico. None of this Rose would confirm or deny. We're mutts, she said, and left it at that. One of the harlots claimed that Rose had been found as a waif in the slums of Mexico City. For a fee, she was brought north. I believe that. I believe most anything when it comes to Rose. 
She spoke five languages, her hair was blue-black, her skin copper, her eyes green. In San Francisco, she became a much-favored prostitute, catering to the gold rush miners. Her next clients were the fellows who came after the miners, the suit-wearing bankers and merchants who thought they could gentle a murderous, gambling, whoring town. They thought they could gentle Rose. Instead, she became the grand dame of the Barbary Coast, the Rose of the Rose. She did not raise me. That duty fell to a Swedish widow employed to bring me up to be, I suppose, anything but a hooker. In that, Maury Johnson was successful. I am not a hooker. I am only a thief. And everyone out there has to run to make sure you buy Vera by Carol Edgarian just to find out what kind of thief Vera actually was. But thank you, Carol. Really, really wonderful thank having you, you on The Literary Life. Great to see you. And, you know, maybe by the fall, you know, maybe... Maybe the book fair by the fall. In oh, I'd love that. I'd love that. that. Right? You know, we're hoping, we're hoping to do it in the in, in the physical world. So I'd love it. I'll have my shots and and I'm ready to travel. 